Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast where we talk about the great books in the Western canon. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Dr. Junius Johnson. And today we are talking about quite a, uh, quite a bear of a book, The Brothers Karamazov. The Widowmaker. The Widowmaker. That's right. Literally. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. So, t- Junius, maybe uh, tell us about your history with the book. Uh, so I, you know, obviously knew about the book for a long time, and and is one of those things that you've discovered. Like, oh, I'm supposed to have read this, and it's like, oh, what do I do? Um, and I finally, uh, gosh, I don't remember exactly when it was. It was either late college or early grad school. And I sat down to to tackle them. I think it was in graduate school, and um, and I don't remember much of the experience of reading it. It was it was almost like this surreal mind journey uh, that I came out the other side of, and it was in a changed state of mind. But um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of all there is to it. It was just incredible. It stuck with me, um, even as in preparing for today again, as I dove back into it, um, it's, it was amazing how quickly things came out and how many details came out to show that it really left an impression on me. But um, I had read Crime and Punishment first, which I'll come circle back around to at the end of the of the show. And um, that prepared me in some ways and well, and then also prepared me poorly in other ways for this text. Mm, mm, interesting. This is, I think, maybe the second book. uh, Well, the third book, I think, that we've talked about in the list that I have basically no experience prior to reading it for this episode. Mm. Um, Most of the books I have at least read once or or am familiar enough with the author or the surrounding context. I could probably, you know, converse about them with with very little research. But this this was a little bit different. Um, I think it took me a couple months to read it. And, uh, part of, part of that was just circumstance. And part of it is just the length of the book, um, yeah. which is very long, a uh, 705 pages, I think is my edition. Um, so it was, it's, it's quite a, quite a, quite a monster, but it, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it and am looking forward to kind of not only discussing it with you, but kind of the, the the further reflection that comes up after those conversations have a chance to sort of marinate and and um, kind of you know uh, mature, I guess, a little bit in my mind. So, anyways, yeah, I'm I'm very interested. What what edition do you use for uh, Brothers K? Uh, I'm using the Penguin Classics edition, and this one is translated by uh, it's translated by uh, David McDuff. <laughs> Of Macbeth fame, apparently. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> it's it's right. quite a. I'm not competent to judge the Russian, but it's quite a good. Uh, it, it reads quite well as an English translation, anyway. Hmm. 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 I have the uh, Barnes and Noble Classics edition. Actually, funny story about this. My wife wanted to read this, and then, and so she bought it at Barnes and Noble, and then got pregnant with our second child. And mm. uh, I think the uh, the whole stress of being pregnant, she didn't really feel like reading. <laughs> reading it during yeah. all that i think i've read somewhere that reading this book while pregnant is not recommended by the surgeon general that's right that's right <laughs> but but I, this translation's by constant garnett uh, again i have no uh knowledge of of how credible of a translation it is but it was certainly helpful uh good footnotes and uh in notes though as we were discussing before in notes are not fun to deal with especially when you have a book this long <laughs> no right exactly uh, one other thing, one other thing, we should say, listeners, before we get into this, is um, you know all of these conversations that we're having about these books are necessarily um, fragmentary. Uh, their approaches to the text, and, and really, what we hope to do is, I think, two things. One is to 
inspire you to want to go read it again or read it for the first time, whatever the case may be. That's the that's the most important thing. And the second thing is to give you some hooks to hang your hat on while you're going through it. But whenever you're talking about a great book, you're always going to have to leave more unsaid than you leave said. And that reality is, is multiplied by a factor of 100 with a book as, as large and complex as this one is. So we're going to say a few things that, that stand out to us that we think are helpful for orienting a reading of the whole text. But there's there's a lot of just really rich material that we're not even going to be able to touch in this thing. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, uh, we better just, just dive in here because time's going to be at a premium. Um, and I think the, a good place to start would be just to look at the family itself, the, the title family, the Karamazov family. And the, the title focuses us in on the brothers. But before we turn to the brothers, let's start with the, with the father and say a few things about, about the father. So why don't you lead us, Lady Sam Wesley, with a little bit about Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov. Yeah, so I, I will say one sort of framing hermeneutic I think I have for the brothers is that I, I actually think Soren Kierkegaard's uh, Stages on Life's Way has a bit to tell us about who these characters are. Mm. Um, this is a realist novel. Uh, the characters are are humans and, the, and all the complexities that they bring to the table. But I do think that each member of the family can kind of find their place in what it is that Kierkegaard's doing in that book. And, mm. and just briefly, quickly, because the last thing we need to do is bring in a whole other complicated philosophy <laughs> textbook in this discussion. But Kierkegaard basically says there are these kind of three stages that one can can walk through in life. There's the aesthetic stage where one is is very concerned with appearance, with with um with uh with experiences, with a kind of hedonism. And then there's uh, as one matures, one may move into what's called the ethical or moral stage where one becomes concerned with how one lives. And kind of culminating this these stages is the religious phase, which for Kierkegaard is is freighted with importance. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But that's kind of the way in which I see the three brothers. Now, the father is an interesting and terrible character. He is uh, he's wealthy, and and you kind of get the idea that that he gets his wealth in ways that make him sort of a social outcast. You know, mm -hmm. um, in in. Christian societies, and, and I use the term Christian loosely in some ways there, but, uh, you know, it was kind of looked down upon for business people to, and, and some places forbidden to like charge interest in things, you know, mm -hmm. um, it was actually usually Jewish merchants who were allowed to do those things, but the Christian merchants couldn't. You get the kind of idea that, that Theodore has been hanging out with, from their perspective, a very unsavory crowd. He is a very selfish man. He is uh, a narcissist, a womanizer. Um, he is. He does not really care about his wives or his children. Both his wives die. Um, Dimitri, the oldest son, uh, his he's the only child of his father and mother. And then he's got two sons, um, Ivan and Alyosha, who come from his second wife. Again, both die. Um, and he doesn't seem to care very much about the wives dying, and he doesn't seem to care about the raising of the children. They're raised primarily by servants and extended family members and shipped around from place to place, sort of separated. Uh, Dimitri is not really raised with the other two for most of the most of their upbringing. Mm -hmm. So he is um, he is, I think, from a Kierkegaardian perspective, we might call him an absurdist. You know, he's mm -hmm. he is he has almost no underlying logic other than other than what he kind of finds whimsical in the moment, you know, mm. um, in conversations, he often rambles. 
He doesn't seem to take anything very seriously. Even the meeting with the elder, Father Zosima, who's a wonderful saintly man. And, and you know, the way Fyodor acts, it's, you can kind of tell he doesn't think it's very serious. There's some thought maybe he's a holy fool, which is a Russian, uh, often a Russian kind of Eastern Orthodox uh, character who acts in a way to uh, to show hypocrisy in the culture um, or in the town that the holy fool lives in. I think that Fyodor pictures himself as a holy fool, but I don't know that anybody else really actually believes he's a holy fool. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's forgotten the holy part. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Though I think a holy fool may, at least at times historically, they would engage sometimes in unsavory behavior mm -hmm. um, in order to test. Like I like I remember hearing a pastor one time talk about how he, he showed up at a church um, in a disguise, like kind of as a, as a you know, uh, bum looking guy and and the way he was treated was so different and then he used that as a way of saying hey you know you all need to do better in terms of welcoming and hospitality and stuff like that um, so I think that's in some ways what the holy fool is trying to draw out but uh, you know one wonders what exactly does Fyodor actually draw out except uh, everybody dislikes him for being dishonorable that's right he, he draws anger out of people that's what he does that's right everyone yeah yeah, that's right. Um, and I, I, I think that this, it, it's interesting because um, this is the head of the stream of which the three brothers flow. Um, this is the head of the family. And his, his presence in his son's lives has been, as you indicated, largely by means of absence. Um, and so there are these relationships to him uh, that are largely legal, financial, um, but not really filial. And that's going to be really important in the relationship that we see between uh, him and his oldest son, Dimitri. But also, he's got this fourth son. There's a, there's a, there's a, right. a, a ghost brother, Karamazov, in there um, that he has sired on um, this uh, poor woman who lived about the place. And it, it's, it's unclear whether his relationship with her um, is something she could even would have had the capacity to consent to or not. Mm -hmm. um, and so the the fourth son... Um, also comes into this relationship in uh, a sort of interesting and negative way, Smerdyakov, um, because, again, there's a total lack of filial uh, relationship between those two. He, he gives no love or affection to his sons at all, and what he really expects of them is to stay out of the way. And so when the novel begins, Dmitri's come back and has come back seeking to claim an inheritance that he owed from his mother, um, and this is a threat to Fyodor because all of a sudden he's going to lose substantial resources. And we should say too that the difference is that Smerdyakov is a servant in the house. Right. He's That's not right. even a he's not even viewed as a son, he's viewed as a servant. So there's a a whole dynamic there that's a little different. Though perhaps one could argue at least the lines are clearer in that relationship. You know, I think one of the frustrations yeah. Dimitri has over the book is that he's constantly kind of expecting his dad to act like a dad and he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. The the Smerdyakov uh, Fyodor relationship is is the most honest of the four mm -hmm. relationships. Really, mm -hmm. yeah. Good point. So let's talk about Dmitri a bit. Then, uh, so Dmitri is this is this as we see him at the beginning of the novel. He is full of. Um, he's the aesthetic man that you described in Kierkegaard. Uh, although, listeners, you may have heard Kierkegaard's aesthetic state man can go in a couple of different directions. You can have a more noble version of the aesthetic, or you can have a more ignoble. And, and Dmitri definitely is the latter, I would say. He is given over to sensuality. He's, he's engaged to a woman who's a woman of means, and he's 
tired of her and he, he's fallen in love with another woman and he wants the money to be able to be with this woman as well. But he just, he's sort of following his whim throughout the world, which brings him into contact, into conflict with his dad, perhaps in part because he's probably the most like his dad of the other sons. And so there's that, we, we see this even in the fact that they're chasing after the same woman, both the, the father and the eldest son want to marry Grushinka. Um, so yes, there's sensuous Dimitri, but he's in for quite a journey uh, on the, over the course of this novel, isn't he? He is. And of course, uh, he also has military experience. So he has that mm -hmm. kind of violence. Uh, you know, he's he's very quick to lash out. There are multiple scenes where he ends up beating someone up. Um, mm -hmm. He gets into brawls, you know, so it's it, he's he's a womanizer. There's that aspect. But he's also he also has no self-control, mm -hmm. which is certainly a large, large problem and, and does kind of get him into trouble later. <laughs> right. Um, and then that brings us to Ivan. To Tell us about Ivan. Yeah, so he is the intellectual of the family. He has written some articles and journals and is very educated, very intelligent, doesn't speak much. In fact, we don't really get to know him as a character until pretty, well, not late in the novel, but after a couple hundred pages at least really is when he kind of, you, you begin to get to know him. He is not an atheist per se. He believes that there may be a God, um, but he is protesting against God specifically because of the issue of um, suffering when it comes to children. Mm -hmm. um, he kind of says, well, you know, adults have their own uh, issues. You know, a lot of it is, is deserved because we make choices and, um, and we, we eat the forbidden fruit. I think he says, but children are innocent. Mm. And the fact that there's, and he, he comes up with all these graphic examples of children. Uh, suffering and they are truly terrible and things we should have to to wrestle with but um but he he basically says well if that's the the cost of the harmony of the universe then i don't want to punch the ticket i'm not interested in that so he's he's got some interesting ideas when it comes to uh, his relationship to god mm -hmm. and so um and yes and 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 we see him sort of unravel mentally as the novel progresses. Mm -hmm. I do think there's a sense in which he does correspond to the ethical stage pretty well. Um he's maybe more of an intellectual but I think because of his intellectual power he does see that there is a some sort of moral responsibility that exists. It's just a question of what do you do with it, especially yeah. in a world when you reject god and i think there are a couple times where he basically says well if you don't have god then you can do whatever you want right i mean, i think that's right and he he seems to be obsessed with this idea the connection between god and morality mm -hmm. and, and it's, it seems to me the reason he spends so much time on god is because of the moral implications if he's able to overturn this specter of a notion of god that's haunting him he reminds me in a lot of ways of, of nietzsche um yeah. whose philosophy is coming out at, at the same time as this novel is being written um, and there's a the, the very strong sense of he's kind of a Zarathustra-like character. We'll talk about Zarathustra next season. And so maybe, you know, readers put a pin in this for when we come back around to Zarathustra. But um, the way in which there is the sense that Christianity has got the world exactly backwards. Um, what Christianity is lauding as a, you know, praiseworthy edition of the world, Ivan and Nietzsche would both want to say, that would not be a world you should want to live in, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think you're right to see him, the ethical man in him. And then also, as we'll talk about in a bit, the fact that his unraveling is centers around the ethical, the putting into ethical practice 
his philosophy, I think, again, shows that he's he's obsessed with the ethical as a character. And actually, it's interesting you mentioned Nietzsche because uh, Nietzsche is quoted by characters in and alluded to by characters in the book. But I think if I remember one of the more common uh, characters to do that is Rakuten, who's a mm. seminarian who's very cynical about the world. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways you can kind of pair off Alyosha and Father Zosima on one side and Ivan and and Rakuten on the other side mm -hmm. as being sort of counterbalances to each other. So Rakuten is a more minor character, but I think he's on the same side as Ivan. And there's this kind of affinity towards Nietzsche there yeah. as well. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll circle back around to that in a second. But first, we ought to say a word about Alyosha. And um, one of the things that is there's a lot of uh, real world in this novel. All of the examples in the Grand Inquisitor chapter of children suffering were drawn from the newspapers. And so those were all things that actually happened in Russia in um, Jostevsky's day. Um, he, he knew a, a criminal who was condemned for murdering his father, who was the model for Dmitri. Um, and so there are all these things that he's, it, it's, it's a very, the novel that's very deeply involved in conversation with the culture at the time. One thing we should say too, by the way, I forgot to mention this. Ivan does not like Dimitri. Right. And 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 this perhaps he has a good reason for it, given what's going on with his heart as well. He's right. secretly in love with Dimitri's fiance. That's right. That's right. And that's the other element of that. Dimitri's engaged. He's in love with this other woman who his father's also in love with, and Ivan. And the woman that Dimitri's engaged to also have a kind of thing going on on the side. Yeah. And so, oh, yes, yeah, so it's a very tangled web. Yeah, these relationships among family members and their desires, which ought to be harmonious and mutually supporting and life-giving, instead they're parasitic, right? Mm -hmm. And into that, we drop Alyosha, who has the same name as Dostoevsky's son, who died at age three. And it's mm -hmm. generally agreed that he's modeled modeled on Alyosha, not, not so much, I mean, uh, Dostoevskyevich, Alyosha's son, died when he was three. We don't Dostoevsky could not have known much of what he would have been like as a man, but I think we see in Alyosha a father's hopes for what his son could be. And Alyosha is the third, st the st third stage of Kierkegaard's man, the religious man, the spiritual man. He's in a monastery, he's in seminary, he's, he's well, monastery, and he's in preparation to enter into the monastery. He's learning from Father Zosima, um, both the ways of being a monk, but also just general holiness. And um, and he, unlike the others, you know, having entered into uh, the monastery, into the novitiate, he has in some ways quite specifically and, and literally agreed to sever ties with his family, to make the monks and the family of God his family instead. Um, and, and the only reason he's so available for all the shenanigans that go around in the in the, in the um Karamazov family is because Father Zosima sends him back into the world to, to learn more and get more experience of those that he would serve. So Ayosha's got a very separate existence from everyone. You know, he he's developing holiness and he is certainly set apart from the rest of his family. And they don't know exactly what to do with him. In some ways, it's convenient because he's not a competitor, which is all of these other relationships are competitive and Ayosha is not competing with them, but precisely because he's not competing with them, they don't know what to do with them. Right. And they don't know how to think about him. He is the character that for the most part, it seems like all the brothers and even the father like the most Yeah. because he's not competing. But then at times when he actually does speak truth into situations, he does get usually some blowback, especially from Yvonne, but uh, at different times, all three care of his family members really kind of fuss at him i think i think that's right and it, i think we can 
that that rings very true to life to me as well that you have the the child who is more spiritually minded um who everyone kind of respects until he turns the critical eye on them right yeah. but even the grand inquisitor chapter which is ivan trying to it's his great plea to alyosha to see the world a different way there's something um loving about the way that he does it i yes. think the chapter would read differently if ivan were making his case to someone else anyone sure. else really sure sure absolutely and we should say too, fathers Osama and Ivan or Alyosha have a very interesting relationship because it's not just the relationship of a spiritual director or advisor, but uh, fathers Osama is what's called an elder, which is a very particular thing to Russian orthodoxy, from what I understand. Which is basically where you, as a as a person, give yourself over to an advisor, and you are effectively consenting to whatever they tell you to do. Mm -hmm. ahead of time so like yeah. i mean as an anglican we do something called spiritual direction which is a very voluntary you know you you have a parishioner and they come to you and you you work with them but it's a mutual partnership that can be severed at any time with no feelings hurt or anything like that and um and the person doesn't have to do the things you suggest you know it's very um it, mutuality is really key but the elder way the way they relate to their elders is very different if the elder tells you you're not going into the monastery, you're going back into the world. It's not a negotiation from Alyosha's mm -hmm. end. Alyosha does it because the because his elder told him to. That's right. That's right. That that notion of obedience, which is foundational to monasticism, which is offered towards the abbot, it, it's taken a level higher in orthodoxy, it seems. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because I think still Alyosha is living a monastic life. He's or or, or at least what a monastic life points to, um, yeah. even when he's in the world. Well, and that's and that's the as we think about the genuineness of Ayosha's faith, that's the the test of it, right? Is that you can take the boy out of the monastery, but you can't take the monastery out of the boy. Uh, and so he, and that's one of the reasons why it makes sense for Zosima to send him into the world. Zosima has understood that Ayosha will not be in any danger. Uh -huh. He will be vulnerable, but not in danger. And out there, he can become a catalyst for change. I think it's only because Zosima sees what's going on in Ayosha's family that he makes the call that Alyosha needs to go out. He recognizes that there is a there's a redemptive need in the Karamazov family, and that perhaps God has raised up the youngest Karamazov for just this purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, so the, the, this this let's I've alluded to that scene. So let's come to that scene. Um, Dmitri and uh, Fyodor are arguing over Grushinka, um, and there's this sum of money, this three thousand. Uh, rubles that's required um, in the because um, Fyodor has offered Grushinka a dowry of 3,000 rubles if she will marry him and um, Dmitri has stolen 3,000 rubles from his fiance and used them to take uh, Grushinka on a fabulous journey and vacation and whatnot and so he's in a situation of needing to pay that money back but also needing more money so he can continue to try to woo Grushinka and so the argument between uh, Dmitri and Fyodor is going nowhere. And at last, uh, Alyosha appeal, appeals to them and says, hey, can we, let's go to Father Zosima, right? Maybe he can mediate between the two of you. And so they do come to the monastery and Alyosha's got high hopes for what will happen there. And um, and it's not a good meeting. And as as the, as this meeting, they're, they're rude uh, and, they're, and they get to yelling at each other and whatnot. And, and then something, one of my favorite scenes in the whole book is uh, Zosima, as he's watching this, he he can see with a quasi-prophetic vision the path that Dimitri is on. 
and the end of that path that is going to lead to uh, enormous suffering. And Father Zosima gets on his knees and bows down before Dimitri. Uh, really, he's bowing not to Dimitri, but to the pain, to the suffering specifically that Dimitri will, will undergo. Uh, such an, an amazing moment. And just exact the reversal of what you would expect, that the secular people would bow before the Holy Father, but instead the Holy Father bows before them. Um, do something with that. Take, t- tell us, uh, take us in some direction with that. Well, I think it's important to note that um, this idea, Father Father Zosima, it's mentioned a couple times, has this kind of spiritual ability or power because of his holiness that he can in some ways anticipate the future. Um, he, he's almost a sort of prophet. And so, yes, he's looking at this and he's three steps ahead in the chess game. You know, he knows what's going to happen. And, and yeah, he bows to Dimitri, which is interesting. And, and, and maybe we should say something about the plot here too, to help on people maybe who aren't familiar with the story, understand what's going on there, which is that, you know, Dimitri, uh, or, I mean, uh, Fyodor ends up dead, killed, mm-hmm. murdered. Yeah. And, and it's in the middle of this dispute that's going on this extended dispute and of course dimitri is the one who's blamed for it right dimitri shows up covered in blood and suddenly flushed with money <laughs> yes that's right that's right and so they're like well you know he's got all this money he's, he's covered with blood so he must have been the one to do it now uh you know spoiler alert it wasn't him he's not the he wasn't guilty of the murder but because of all the situation of this whole situation and the way that dimitri flies off the handle and his character he is a very easy scapegoat. Yeah. So, yeah. So for Father Zosima, this idea of, and, and I think this this cuts to something really important against Yvonne and, and Rakuten to a, a lesser extent. I would, I would say that, that those two and their doubt are kind of rely on, a, on, a, on an individual, a, a rigid individualism. You know, mm. that there is no connection uh, between people. Mm. And I think Father Zosima, in, in his bow towards Dimitri, is not only an acknowledgement of what will happen, but it's also a kind of awareness that there is a, a deep connection between between humans, that we're enmeshed in this really complex network of relationships, that that what you do and what I do are not unconnected from each other. Now, of course, we're, we may not be able to draw direct lines of causation from your actions to my actions, but there's this sense in which ev- all are connected. Um, yeah. And and I think Father Zosima in the bow is communicating uh, a reverence towards Dimitri. Yes, he's going to be unjustly accused. There's that mm-hmm. element to it. But there's also a sense in which I think for, from Father Zosima's perspective, this means that we're all complicit in that mm. suffering as well. So there is almost a, not apology, but perhaps a kind of repentance that's going on there as mm. well, because this is at the heart of Father Zosima's teaching that not only are we all connected, but that really change happens almost kind of one action at a time, one person mm. at a time that, that you have to love in order for the world to change. But how can you love unless you love the individual person in front of you? You know, right. this is, I, is it, is it, uh, Rakuten or, or Shmerdjikov, who's it said that you know the more they love humanity, the less they like particular people. I think <laughs> at certain points in the novel, and so yeah. but Father's Awesome is the opposite. 
You know, yeah. I love humankind by loving the person that's in front of me. You know, I have I have clergy friends who they always talk about, well, and they act like there's a perfect parish, you know, mm -hmm. oh, well, if only I was, you know, over here instead of where I am now. And it's like, well, you have to minister to the people in front of you. And if you don't do that, you're never going to right. be an effective minister. And it's right. the same thing with love. You love the people who you're around. You love your neighbors. You love your family. You love your your spouse. You love your kids. You love your extended family, um, the people at your church, the people that you're friends with. You love those people. And then you're capable of loving humanity. It doesn't work the other way. Oh gosh, there's a, there's a moment in the never-ending story um, towards the end of the novel when Bastion is trying to find his way back to our world. He's looking for a wish that will bring him back to our world. Um, and he finally finds it, and the wish is he wants to be able to love. Mm. For, the wish before that is he wants to be loved for who he is, and that's not enough to get him mm. back to our world. He has to want to be able to love. And one of the characters says, yeah, you found your wish. To, you want to be able to love, but when you get to the waters of life, which is the transition out of Fantastic into your world, the waters are going to ask you, love whom? Because you can't love in general, right? That's right. Be specific, right? And it's his father at the end of the day that he has to come find the love for. So he's just very anti Dimitri in that way. There's something else about Zosmo's bowing that that sticks with me, and that is, um, you know, here's a here's a man of God, and he's bowing down. And men of God don't bow before anything except for the things of God. And at the moment, Dimitri is as far from a holy thing as almost as it's possible to imagine. He would be as far as it's possible to imagine if his father were standing right there. He's just a <laughs> tiny little bit further, right? Um, but as Zosima looks, you know, sees into the future, as you say, of this, of this young man's life, he sees the redemptive work that God is going to do through Dimitri's suffering. And so he recognizes Dimitri's suffering. This is why you can bow down to it. It's not just suffering. Suffering in and of itself is not exciting or something to bow down to. He recognizes that the suffering is the economy of God in Dimitri's life. Mm. It's the way the spirit is summoning Dimitri to being a better Dimitri. And so he bows down before the work of God that he sees playing out in the, in the life of a man where no one else has any sense that God's got anything to do with Dimitri right now, right? And that is wow. such an incredible image of what the vision of faith, how it can transform the way you approach the world and the people around you, right? And I think that's the seed. I, I don't, I think Dimitri remembers this in all the suffering that comes later on. And this is the beginning of a softening of his heart. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit, it, it, without the suffering aspect, it reminds me a little bit of the novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I think the, the pastor who's in, who is writing the letter says something like, every time I baptize a baby, I remember that um, I'm not making them holy. I'm recognizing something that already is holy or someone yeah. that's already holy. And there's yeah. a sense in which, yeah, because you get the idea. I mean, Dimitri is the most isolated of the characters, I think, yes. in a sense. Like, he's he's not blood related or well, he's not he's not complete uh, he's a half brother to Yvonne and 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 um Alyosha who have a somewhat close bond at least um mm -hmm. just from natural affinity i if i remember correctly i believe that his father doesn't didn't like uh Dimitri's mother more than the other he disliked the other mother i mean not that he was a great husband to either of them but you know mm -hmm. um and so you, and, and so he's just by, and even even with uh, even with his fiance, I mean, you kind of get the idea that uh, their their relationship's a little odd because she came to him early on in the you know before they were together um, to basically help her because her father had 
committed a, a, a faux pas. And so uh, Dimitri was uh, bailing her out. So even there, you don't have the most intimate of relationships. You kind of have mm-hmm. a, a strained relationship from obligation. And it's it's just odd. And so he's a very isolated person. I think that's right. And it's so you not feel... until Dushenka realizes that she loves him later in the novel that he finally has a real relationship. That's right. That's right. And so it's almost like when Father when Father Zosima does the bow, it's like no one in the room knows how to respond to this, <laughs> especially Dimitri. Yeah. Because it doesn't change him immediately. I think right. it just puzzles him. It baffles him. That's right. It fuddles him. It's like the actions of Jesus, right? Jesus does something and people, no one knows what it means. And then much later they remember and they're like, oh, okay. Yep. Yep. So, so then as Dimitri goes through, you know, his, his situation gets more and more desperate and his suffering increases up and and then he finds himself arrested um, for this murder that he did not in fact commit. And he, and he goes on trial for this murder. And um, at at one point, Yvonne stands up and confesses to having done the murder, which Yvonne of course didn't commit the murder either. Uh, Directly. More more on that in a moment. Um, But no one in the courtroom, none of the peasants on the jury believe this because this it fits so well with Dimitri. It, just, it makes perfect sense. And so he's condemned and sentenced to uh, life imprisonment in Siberia. Um, and the way that his all of this suffering that comes to a head in his in his condemnation, um, it begins to change his character as he begins to relent and to um, look for another way, such that at the end you you go from potentially hating Dimitri early on in the story to, to kind of rooting for him mm-hmm. at the end, right? And I think this is another thing that, that the novel needs us to do is Ayosha doesn't hate his brothers. And and it's asking us to learn to see with a bit of Ayosha's eyes and to, to love these guys and to pity them and to want to see the good for them. And this is where it's frustrating that the, the novel is not complete um, <laughs> because the where where does Dimitri's story arc actually end that was my biggest question when I finished reading it um, is I see him on a trajectory but I don't know whether that's really where he's going to wind up and, and what that will look like hmm. that's true but in the absence of certain knowledge we can certainly hope the best for for brother Dimitri on his journey and I think in some ways for Dimitri being the more sensual one, it doesn't matter in terms of ultimate ending for him, how his situation turns out mm-hmm. because you do get a more thoughtful, uh, loving person by the end of the story. And so whether he's in Siberia or whether he is escapes and goes to America and lives happily ever after with Krishinka, it almost doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, the point is in the development itself. Right. Uh, whereas someone like Ivan, uh, Ivan, I think is a little more, he's in a little bit more of a terrifying place. He is. Yes. And, and so let's, let's gosh, lead us into the grand inquisitor. Then this is before the, most we, well, in the entire thing. Before we go there, let me just say one thing. I think I, I as I was thinking about this, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the three stages, um, and I think, yeah, well, we talk about the three stages and there's a sense in which I think the sort of intellectual ethical stage is almost more dangerous than the aesthetic stage. You know, those of us who are maybe raised in a religious background fear the aesthetic stage, right? Um, you know, you maybe you live a sort of sheltered existence, you know, your parents don't let you go to parties and they don't let you do certain things. And so that's that's viewed as really bad. 
Um, The ethical slash intellectual is in a position where it's very easy to make the wrong turn. Mm. And the turn that they make is not towards something else, but usually it's an interior turn. Right. And that can really mess them up. Yeah. And there's a sense in which, right, this, uh, you, you can almost analogize this to the trivium, mm-hmm. right? Grammar, dialectic, rhetoric. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm, if I'm teaching my students or, and, and we're going through a book, I might give them reading quizzes to make sure they're understanding the actual components of the story. Right. Yeah. And that's an easy thing to correct. If they're not getting the story right. Okay. Go back and reread it. You know, let's go to stage one. Let's just read aloud together. But when they get into that dialectic where they're reasoning about what does the story mean? What's really going on? Mm-hmm. It's a, sometimes a little trickier to tell if they're off or not. And B, if they get off in that stage and then they write you a paper about the book, the paper is going to be bad, right? The product's going to be bad. That's and right. so it's kind of similar with Yvonne. It's like, there's something going on under the surface. That's bad. He's, he's in this kind of inward turn. He's not turning towards sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever it's this kind of pride that he's giving into as yeah. an intellectual person. And I think that's where a really dangerous place to be um, more dangerous than the person who just likes to drink or likes I th- women. I think that's right. I mean, as, as you ascend the hierarchy of the soul, the disorders become more serious. And so, you know, a lush at the lowest level is that's one sort of problem but to have someone who's poisoned in their intellect and in their reasoning is a heretic. Uh, that's a much more serious problem. And then at the level of religion, for someone to be poisoned at that level would be to, to, to worship Satan rather than God or something like this, um, to turn to the, to the wrong spirits. That would be the worst sin of all. And so you, I think there is this hierarchy of um, it's bad to misdirect the pow- any of the powers of the soul, but the higher you go in the soul's powers, the more is at stake with getting it right. Because with Dimitri, it's like he's just, you know, what he's capable of at the beginning of the book is different from what Yvonne is capable of. And so with Dimitri, you can kind of say, well, it makes sense that he responds with anger in that way. You know what I mean? But but with Yvonne, you you know, it's kind of um, it's harder to undo. And I think this is why by the end of the, the novel, Dimitri is in a place where you can say, well, he's grown or growing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Yvonne ends the novel basically with having a mental breakdown, a nervous breakdown. That's right. Um, so the Grand Inquisitor is the story. So Alyosha is trying to find Dimitri uh, er- earlier in the book, and uh, he goes to a restaurant where he thinks Dimitri will be, but Dimitri's not there. But Yvonne is, and so this is really the first time that you get to see Yvonne as a character beyond just kind of being present. He's present for everything that happens before, but he's very quiet. Mm-hmm. So him and Alyosha engage in this discussion and the topic of God comes up. Alyosha is actually not sure if Ivana even believes that there's a God. And so uh, the, the subject naturally goes there since, since Alyosha's a uh, 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 novitiate. And, uh, and so Yvonne gives him kind of his, his take on, on the suffering of children. And then he tells him a story or a poem. He calls it a poem and <laughs> it's not a poem. He's actually written. It's a poem. He might write. I think if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, he hasn't even written it. And basically, uh, it's set in the grand in the um, in the Inquisition in Spain, and it opens with Jesus coming to 
Spain. And he's walking around. He heals people. He he does miracles. You know, he's clearly Jesus. This isn't a counterfeit. This is Jesus. And, you know, the people are so excited. And all of a sudden, you get this older Grand Inquisitor priest. I think he's 90. He looks kind of evil. Mm-hmm. He comes and he, he says, arrest that man. So they arrest him. They arrest Jesus. And he goes to Jesus in the while well, Jesus is in prison and he and he basically lays it out for him that hey why would you come back <laughs> <laughs> we don't need you in a way yeah um he says all you did for people is you made them free but that freedom is this terrible thing mm-hmm. and the church as an institution especially medieval roman catholic church and of course Dostoevsky's writing this from a, an Orthodox perspective, mm-hmm. uh, is this kind of tyrannous institution that provides order and it takes away the burden of freedom from people. But Jesus coming back threatens to renew their sense of freedom. And so he goes on this kind of long diatribe and and Jesus gets up and kisses the Grand Inquisitor on the lips. Mm-hmm. And the Grand Inquisitor basically lets him go and says, don't come back here ever again. (laughs) And then, of course, at the end of the story, Alyosha gets up and kisses Yvonne on the lips. And Yvonne (laughs) says, that's plagiarism. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a very interesting story. And of course, there's there's more to it than that. It actually kind of drags on quite a bit. You're right. It could be um, it could be kind of a a story in and of itself. In fact, I posted in the newsletter a couple weeks ago, uh, Plow magazine had a graphic novel of the Grand Inquisitor story that they released, which is pretty cool. And at least when I posted it, it was free if you signed up for their newsletter or whatever. So um, maybe I'll repost that if, if possible, if you're interested in that particular story. Yeah, and so the couple of things that I find interesting about this, and some in, intrinsic and some extrinsic. Uh, maybe I'll start with the extrinsic one. This, I most often encounter the Grand Inquisitor as a unbeliever challenge to the faith. That is to say, I'm in conversation with an unbeliever, and they bring up the Grand Inquisitor as this great example of why they're not a Christian. Mm. Um, and so it's it, it's and, and this is why. Um, this is one of the reasons why it's often excerpted. It's the most commonly excerpted part of this novel to read, and you'll find it in a lot of you know secular great books curricula. They'll read the Grand Inquisitor and whatnot, and and it's like they don't read the thing all the way to the end, right? They they take the Grand Inquisitor to be right in right. the same way that people read Paradise Lost and think that you know, well, Satan's right. Satan's the main character, and so really, this is. You know, I actually saw a post recently that uh, on you know leading atheist poets. Of English literature, and they had Milton on the list, and their justification for arguing that Milton was an atheist was Satan in Paradise Lost. And they said, "Well, we think seems like Satan represents what Milton actually thinks." And it's like, "Wow, that's some really bad reading, you guys." Um, and the same thing happens here, um, and that's what's so beautiful about Ayosha's response at the end. Uh, and this is the internal thing I want to point. So, so I think I think let me finish that first thought. Um, a lot of people look at this and they think this is a serious challenge to the faith that Dostoevsky has thrown up in the middle of this novel. Um, but that's to read it out of context, both the context of how the story is framed and where it ends, but also the context of Ivan's arc within the novel and how that's how where Ivan winds up and where Alyosha winds up. Um, actually, it's, it's very, it's challenging 
um, Ivan's doubt crumbles as the novel goes. And, and so he himself would not circle back around to the Grand Inquisitor at the end of the novel. But the other thing, the internal thing that really strikes me about this every time is Alyosha's response to get up and kiss Ivan. It's brilliant on two levels. One is it shows he's really been listening, right? Because Ivan's, the, the whole point of the story is Jesus is right and the Grand Inquisitor is wrong. And so what does the one who is right do? He shows love by going up and offering the kiss of, of peace. And so Alyosha has not been so offended by this whole outburst and this whole story that he can't even face you all. Oh, I can't even have anything to do with you. You're going to hell. Right. But rather he's listened and he's heard the deeper heart of his brother underneath the story. And that's mm -hmm. a beautiful example of patient listening to listen beyond what the person is saying, which may be deeply offensive to what in the person's heart they're giving expression to as they speak. But then also it, he, it's a very succinct way of communicating to Ivan. Don't you see that you are making yourself the Grand Inquisitor. Do you recognize that you have become this? And, and that's why Ivan is so put off by it. He's like, okay, first of all, like you still have my ideas, but also, like, you know, <laughs> whoa, like you didn't get it. Or did you get it? Right. And so that's an important chink in Ivan's armor. And that's, I think, another one of those things that, um, that gets treasured up in the hearts of the brothers uh, and then comes to fruition later on when Ivan realizes. Um, what that he has indirectly been the cause of his father's death. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think for, for Ivan, because like we said, he it's not that he doesn't believe God is real. It's that I think for him, religion is useful only insofar as it is a way of managing morality. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get the Grand Inquisitor. That's kind of the perspective he's coming from. Yeah. It's saying like this is a useful thing for us as the church as an institution to control the people with. And the people want us to control them because freedom is a terrifying thing. Right. And this of course it is terrifying especially when you have the view that Ivan has that if you don't have God you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And I think it raises some really profound questions about the nature of freedom because um because it seems as though from that kind of antagonistic perspective or the perspective of doubt that this mm -hmm. freedom, the kind of essential meaning of freedom is the ability to choose freedom of choice. Yes. And I think from, from father Zosima and Alyosha's perspective, that's not true freedom. True freedom is the, is the, the capacity of the will to choose the good. I think for right. them, that's right. In fact, at one point, father Zosima tells um, I think he, well, it's in, it's in the section that Alyosha wrote after father's awesome is death mm. where he's, where he's going through and he's talking about his kind of philosophy of monasticism and his theology. And he says that obedience, fasting, and prayer are laughed at by the world. Mm. Yet they alone constitute the way to, um, to real and true freedom. Mm -hmm. I cut away my superfluous and unnecessary needs through obedience. I humble and chasten my vain and proud will and thereby with God's help attain freedom of spirit. And with that spiritual rejoicing. Yeah. So it's not, I was just having a conversation with, uh, with a friend of mine this afternoon 
uh, before we got on, he's been reading Few of St. Victor's to Scalicon. And mm. this came up that, that the monastic life is about making oneself free for God. Yes. So I don't have to worry about the a, a nine to five job. I don't have to worry about domestic responsibility. I am here to pray. Yeah. That's really good. And that's that's recapitulating a discussion that has gone on in Western European culture prior to this, where um, the older idea, and you see it in Anselm, right, that freedom is not the freedom to do what you want. Freedom is the freedom to do what is just. Mm -hmm. And so the, the saint is freer than the sinner, right? The most gained the ability to do what was unjust, we became less free because now we can't choose what we would do. And, and that's a, Anselm's thinking about you know, Paul's dilemma in Romans about the good that I would do, I don't do, and the evil I don't want to do, that's what I do, right? Um, and that gave way in the early modern period to, you know, freedom is the um, libertarian freedom, right? The ability to pick whatever you want to pick. Um, and, and those two things are in common. And the libertarian freedom has worn out in Dostoevsky's day. That, that's the dominant notion of freedom. And we see, um, yeah, the holy man in this book trying to recapture and living out of that older understanding of what freedom really is. And I think for them, because they're they're so uh, strongly emphasizing the theme of love, Fathers Awesome and Alyosha, I don't think that they would even be against the significance of free choice. I think they would just see that as a different thing than free will. That's right. Um, you know, of course, the 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 love that one has towards another should be freely chosen. It can't be forced. Mm -hmm. um, Mother Maria Skopsova says that was the problem with communism, right? It wasn't the idea of sharing in common. It was the the sort of compulsory nature of it. Yeah. And I think that there's something kind of similar going on here where, of course, love has to be chosen freely. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, but freedom is not... I'm not more free because when I go to the grocery store, there's 20 different kinds of white bread versus 15. You know, I'm not living the, the libertarian dream over here. That's right. Um, and, and I think we all experience as we're standing there in front of this mountain wall of bread, we experience the opposite of freedom. We experience the paralysis, right? What's that's right. It's terrifying because what if I choose the wrong thing? That's right. And then your wife's going to know, of course, and she'll tell you. That's um, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so there's a, there's a contradiction then, it seems to me, in the heart of um, Ivan's philosophy here. Well, maybe not in the heart of his philosophy, but in, in the way he applies it. Because on the one hand, his biggest beef with God is the bestowal of freedom upon creatures, which leads to the suffering of children, right? On the other hand, um, if there's no God, then everything is permissible. You can do whatever you want, and that's fine. Um, I don't think, and he's, you know, he's not properly an atheist. He's trying to work out what to do with this. Maybe he's not entirely sure that God is to be praised. Maybe, maybe God is the great enemy. Maybe he's playing around with that idea, right? Um, but <laughs> he he never seems to get past. It's almost a, look. If you're an atheist, it works great, right? If there's no God, then there's this freedom, and it's a whole big deal, and it's a it's a problem, and children are going to suffer. But if there is a God, even if He has given you freedom, you're still not allowed to do whatever you want to do, because now there's a boundary to morality, and that's what he never gets back around to. It's like he doesn't close the circle to come back to wait, but. If there is a God up there, far from being mad at him from giving us human freedom, that clarifies that human freedom is, in fact, circumscribed. Right. And that and that is supposed to be the stay against the murder of children. So in that case, the murder, the, the mistreatment, horrible things that happen is the suffering of children, not the murder of them. Murder is too easy. They get off too easy if you just kill them. The suffering of children 
is um, a rebellion against the idea of God rather than an argument against the idea of God, right? Mm. But, and Ivan never really closes that loop in his logic. That's true. That's good. You're right, exactly right. He doesn't. It's um, he is in a yeah. He's in a sort of confused state i think throughout the novel which is only made clearer than by his mental breakdown towards the end because if he's right then mm -hmm. that kind of anxiety and and total uh downward spiral is really the only thing that can happen i think yeah that's right so what happens at the end of the novel listeners is that the um the fourth son smerdyakov whose whose name is literally son of shit <laughs> uh he is um he He's the one who kills Fyodor, Pavlovich. And he confesses this to um, Alyosha, who's like safe to tell stuff to. Um, and he's, but he says, it's not my, it's not really my fault though. Ivan's the one who killed him because Smerdyakov, he hates everybody except Ivan. And he idolizes Ivan and he sits and listens to Ivan's philosophy discussions and whatnot. And he's like, Ivan's the one who taught me that if there's no God, we can do whatever we want to do. And so there's no God. So I did this thing. And when Ivan finds out that this is the case, he accepts his responsibility for this. And this is, for me, a, a really important thread that I like to pick up when I'm teaching this, this novel. Well, I, I've never taught it. If I were to teach this novel, this is a thread I would pick up. Future students take note. Um, that when, Ivan, when someone actually puts Ivan's philosophy into practice and he can see his philosophy embodied in front of him, it terrifies him. It, it, it shocks him, it hurts him at a moral level, and his mind recoils from it, and that is what sends him spinning into madness. It's his own philosophy presented to him as now a way of living in the world that undoes his, that overthrows his mind at, you know, the, mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, not, it's not surprisingly, uh, or at least um, not unrelevantly, um, Nietzsche ended his life in madness also. Mm. That's right. That's right. And of course, one of the symptoms of Yvonne's madness is that he has, well, perhaps has uh, hallucinations of the devil. That's right. Right. Who is, I actually really appreciate Dostoevsky's uh, depiction of the devil and that he is a very sort of quotidian, I mean, he's not, he, he comes as a person and he's kind mm -hmm. of boring in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, and they just sort of go around in circles in the argument. I mean, it's not like he's really tempting Yvonne to do anything terrible. It's just kind of, and even he's kind of playing around with Yvonne's belief, you know, yeah. oh, you don't believe in me. Well, maybe you should, you know, and then as soon as Yvonne <laughs> says something where he does, he goes, oh, well, so you do believe in me now, huh? Interesting. You know, it's, it's very antagonistic, but in a, in the most frustrating, like in a Reddit commenter style type way <laughs> is how, it, what it made me think of. It's and like so, the, um, the unman in Paralandra. Um, yes. Just is like childishly annoying Ransom, just saying Ransom over and over again yep. to just to bother him, right? Yeah. yeah, he has no real good ideas of his yeah. own. You know, he's only just kind of twisting and even, even that might be too much credit. He's just, he's very, yeah, very quotidian, very boring. He's an annoying little prick. He is. Yeah, he is. He is. That's exactly right. That's how you know it's really him. Yeah. Well, so then let's let's talk about. Um, well, before we talk about Alyosha, there's there's one other little episode here that um, you brought up earlier um, before the, the the recording that I think is important to mention, given who we are and who our audience is, which is this question of Kolya and um, reading great books and so. Mm. Tell us something about that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is a uh, there is a schoolboy. Alyosha has a sort of ministry, campus ministry to the schoolboys <laughs> in the town, where and and basically they they had to have this community and there's one boy who gets kind of isolated or alienated from that community and becomes kind of the 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 scapegoat you know he's he's they they act violently towards this boy and he to the to the rest of the school boys and so it's kind of a dysfunctional relationship and one of the boys who's sort of the the most influential the most popular is named Kolya and he's very intelligent or he thinks he's very intelligent at least mm-hmm. you know his father died and left his bookshelf and and Kolya's read or at least has uh, pretends to have read most of the books on the bookshelf. Mm. And so he engages in these uh, kind of drawn out debates with his teacher. Um, and you can kind of get the feeling that the teacher is just sort of annoyed by, by him and, you know, doesn't really enjoy talking to him. We've all had students <laughs> like that, I'm sure. Um, but, but at one point, so in my copy, this is page 503 and I didn't write down what chapter or book number that is. Um, it's, uh, I think, part four, book 10. Alyosha and Kolya are talking about school and, um, and, and universal history is the, is the category. And, and Kolya says, I, I don't like universal history. Mm. Um, and, and by that, he means the, the, basically the study of humankind through time. He says, the only subjects I respect are mathematics and science. And he goes on to say that Latin and Greek stupefy the intellect, so they're not worth studying, mm-hmm. which um, it's usually a stupefied intellect that doesn't like Latin or Greek, in my opinion, or in my experience. But um, but one of the accusations that Kolya makes against the classics, uh, specifically, I think he's talking about literature and, and history, is that it is a form of policing. Mm. form of policing now you do get the idea and i think this is uh, you know this book is set in a very interesting time because it's pre-russian revolution so we haven't had the bolsheviks yet but Mm -hmm. it is post-marx so marxism is a thing Mm -hmm. so you do get this idea that there is a kind of policing based on bourgeois values Mm -hmm. and so characters are are wrestling with that I mean, this is Yvonne's whole point, right? What's religion for? Well, it's for controlling people's morality. You know, right. Mark says that that religion is the opium of the people, which is, uh, I mean, he means, I think he has a more nuanced take than he's often quoted there. In fact, maybe that's a season three book as we can do some, <laughs> some Karl Marx. I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, but, um, but, but, but Colius here, I think is, is, is almost closer and or are more explicit about this that the that the he says that the classics have been translated so they're frauds mm. you know you're reading translations i mean we talk about this with the scriptures you know you're mm-hmm. if you're reading them in english you're reading someone's interpretation of scripture not the scriptures directly i think is oh. is a point and he's not wrong to point that out though i don't know that he he's correct in going all the way and saying it's a fraud but he says the classical authors have been translated into all languages. So it was not for the sake of studying the classics they introduced Latin, but solely as a police measure. <laughs> so you get this idea that 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 this is what the classics are for, right? It's to make you dumb. It's to maybe maybe he means get you in your head, um, and to to promulgate certain values that mm. that might be convenient to the bourgeois. This is not. A radically different argument than what we hear today in some circles in regards to the classics some universities you know that the whether the classics are even taught is a a, a matter of debate um or has even you know they've even stopped teaching them 
-hmm. And so the question is, is Kolya right? Yeah. Are they police measures? Yeah, it's interesting. There's the the old saying, uh, sorry, out in Italian, that the, the translator is a betrayer. Traditore, traditore. Um, and but uh, yeah, so his argument is: Look, we can read them in Russian, so why bother making them in Latin? It's only because if you make it's a way of controlling us, running us through the system, and uh, and you know you can you can control the reading a lot more if you make us read them in Latin because you control how we understand Latin. Right, and this is another issue that comes into play with, with learning languages. You know, say, well, I want to read the Bible. Okay, well, you're not reading the Bible, you're reading the translation. Fine, I'm going to learn Greek. Okay, so how are you going to know what the Greek word means? Oh, I'm going to, my teacher's going to tell me. So you, so now your teacher is interpreting for you. No, no, I'm going to go to the dictionary. Oh, so that scholar who wrote the dictionary is interpreting for you. You can't get outside of tradition if you're going to read anything, right? And it's it's hidden in our native language, but in a learned language that's forefronted because someone's telling you what those words mean. And how to understand those things and um, in, in the context of of at least in my experience taking greek classes and hebrew classes in seminary things like um like concordances will mm -hmm. look at how a word is used in the scriptures mm -hmm. not necessarily in the same author but in the scripture so how is mark using this word versus how is paul using this word but there's very little by way of ready resources of how those words are used culturally that's right so you know you're doing this kind of self-contained arbitrary. You don't know how Paul uses the word. You're thinking about it in the way in, in relation to how Aristotle or Plato used the word because those are your touchstones for what that word means. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's so good. So it, I think it's interesting that Kolya um, is a STEM guy. <laughs> that's right. He is a STEM guy. <laughs> right. I mean, he would. You're, you're right. This is very contemporary. Um, and I, I, we don't we don't really get much sense of. Kolya winds up through all of this, right? I mean, this is just like a little vignette, but we see that Kolya is um, outside of the society of the school, the schoolboys, and he's got a problematic relationship to that society. And he's in the middle of constructing, you know, trying to integrate his psyche around that. Oh, you see, like the, the boys worship me, even though they think they hate me and whatnot, because I'm this great guy. Um, and, and, and so what has he lost by turning away from the humanities to focus on only STEM? Right, because this is not an anti-STEM argument we're making here. What he's lost is connection to humans, right? That's the very thing Father Zosim was on about. The humanities humanize us and put us in a relation with other people. Kolya doesn't recognize fellow humans in the classics. And so he therefore dismisses them as being irrelevant because they don't address the you know modern concerns, right? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's a very... Um... Well, I think I remember seeing something about from Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of about this, yeah. where he said something about how, because he's a big, big STEM, you know, education should be more about STEM and less about all these other kind of subjective uh, subjects. And, uh, and then he said something about, but it's really important that, you know, there be ethics or something mm -hmm. like that. You go, well, how do you get ethics with <laughs> humanities? You know? so, the universe demands that you not kill your brother, does it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. If anything, the opposite, right? Right. Less competition. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so it's a very interesting uh, section and it's very short. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not the main thrust of the book, but, and of course, Alyosha is there and is able to, he speaks some wisdom into this situation, though he, I don't know how successful he is in terms of, turning Kolya. We, it, he does, Kolya does find connection though, because mm. it's, it's Alusha who is sick, right? And, oh, yeah. and Kolya won't go visit him. All the other boys have gone to visit him and Alyosha 
sort of has gained the respect of all the boys. And so, and, and, and that makes Kolya very interested in figuring out Alyosha and goes almost to treat him as sort of an experiment or a study. You know, he wants to, Oh, I've heard a lot about you. I wanted to see if you measured up to the reputation that you had as if he's getting interviewing this, you know, adult. It's very funny, <laughs> but, um, but, but Alyosha does get him to visit Alusha. They, they make up, you know, there's this whole thing with the dogs, uh, the, uh, Alusha, the uh, whole thing, but basically Kolya does in some ways come around and does, probably because of Alyosha, seem to discover some form of authentic connection. Which is fortuitous because Alyosha will die in an, in an echo of Dostoevsky's yes. son's death. Um, that's right. Well, in, in, the, in the few minutes that perhaps remain, let's say something about Alyosha, um, who is introduced to us at the beginning of the story, uh, both in the first chapter and in the author's preface, as the hero of the thing. Um, so he is our main character. Um, and... Um, I think this is the thing that I want to say about him. If I'm, if I'm going to make one statement about Alyosha for readers to take with them going forward, it's going to be this. Alyosha is a catalyst of change. When, when Alyosha comes to a situation, all of these characters in this book are stuck doing the same things over and over again. And those things aren't working but they don't know how to do anything else. And so they just keep doing what they've always done over and over again. And it's killing them. And Alyosha comes into these situations and just by his presence, by bringing the light that he brings into those situations with him, new possibilities emerge, right? Um, Yvonne and, um, is it Katarina? Is that the Dimitri's mm -hmm. uh, fiance? Not, they're unwilling to act on their love for each other because of two different reasons actually. And Alyosha discovers this love and he, he encourages them to act on it. He's cause he knows Dimitri's out of here. You know, Dimitri's gonna, he's Grushenka or bust. And, and it, it's never immediate. But at the end of the story, Katarina takes the mad Ivan home to, to, to tend to him, right? And to, to treat him. Um, Alyosha's presence creates possibilities for Dimitri that, were, that weren't there before. It creates possibilities. Smerdyakov winds up killing himself. Um, he creates possibilities for these boys that weren't there before. That's his role. And and so there's this beautiful image of Ayosha's being subjected to all these tests of his faith. Is he going to be able to stay faithful in the light of all these things that happened? And when he does succeed in being faithful, he changes the world by creating a new path that a person could choose to walk down. You kind of get the idea that Father Zosima and his theology and philosophy is sort of the theorist and Alyosha is the experiment or the practical application of that theory. Mm -hmm. And it and it is shown to be successful yeah. um, because Alyosha does exactly that. I mean, his faith is probably the most tested when Father Zosima dies. And the, yeah. the, the monastic legend was that the body of a true saint would smell sweet. It wouldn't decompose and smell bad. And mm -hmm. Father Zosima's body starts to smell bad. He stinketh, as the King James says, when mm -hmm. Lazarus is, uh, they say, oh, don't don't roll the stone away. He stinketh. Um, right. But Father Zosima does, uh, his body does stink. Um, but Alyosha, everyone says, "Oh, see, he wasn't holy at all." That's yeah, yeah, true. a bunch of triumphalists because he, Father Zosima, because of his holiness, had a, a contingent of people who didn't like him. And then there are all the crowds who came to him because he was so holy. But then, as soon as he was shown to be not as holy because he stinks, they were they turned against him. Mm -hmm. And Alyosha, you, there's a couple chapters where you're not really sure how he's gonna, what he's gonna do next, yeah. because he feels this great loss, and then it's compounded by this by this finding that that the body does stink 
but he does remain faithful and he does obey, even though his faith is not rewarded in the way that you would, he would maybe have wanted. Yeah. So I do think that's an important point about Alyosha that, you know, uh, that has a real world application, which is that if we are people of faith of of any kind, really, I mean, it never works out so mechanistically as we would always want it to. And so we have to, um, we have to have faith kind of regardless of, or in spite of circumstances at times. And I think the other aspect of this, you know, one of the things that Father Zosima tells Dimitri, and I think he tells Fyodor this more, but it's advice he gives out, which is you have to be honest. You have to be honest first with yourself. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems, especially with Fyodor, is that he's not honest with himself at all. Yeah. Um, and Alyosha has the ability, like Father's Awesome, I think, to see people. Um, he's illumined by something else, and he can see people. Mm-hmm. Just like you said earlier, he listened to Yvonne during the Grand Inquisitor story, and he mm-hmm. really could discern where Yvonne was coming from. Mm-hmm. And that is very important because I think Yvonne or I think Alyosha sees people for who they are and reminds them of that. Yeah. I'm reminded there's a movie called doubt or called Calvary um, with Brendan Gleeson. He's a pre Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. Somebody tells him he's going to kill this priest at the beginning of the movie um, because the the man had been abused as a boy and he had to kill a good priest. He couldn't kill a bad priest. He had to kill a good one. This is a good priest. So the movie is Brendan Gleeson's priest character getting his last seven days kind of in order, putting his affairs in order. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's a, a man in the town that he does ministry in who's a male prostitute. And he, mm-hmm. when the priest walks in, he's very vulgar with him, a lot of innuendo and, you know, proposition and just, just gross, you know, nasty on purpose to be provocative. And Brendan Gleeson looks at him and says, are you okay? <laughs> and that's it. And it totally shuts the guy up because nobody asks him that. He's an object to people. Yeah. But the priest sees him for who he is and reminds him of that. Mm -hmm. And Alyosha does that for all the characters in the novel. He at one point tells his dad, who has virtually no redemptive qualities in the whole book. I mean, every other character you can say, well, at least he's got X. (laughs) Peter has nothing like that. And Alyosha tells him, well, it's not that you are ill-natured. It's that you're malformed yeah in other words the the core of who you are the the raw stuff is not bad you've just you know the way it's been put together through circumstances and everything is 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 off kilter Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but nobody else could read that and see that in theodore right i mean nobody else yeah so uh, thinking about ayosha and zasama um, you described it as also as the theorist and Iosha is the one who puts it into practice. And that, that's really cool. I want to, without disagreeing with it, I want to offer a, a, a different, completely speculative reading, which is um, what we see in Alyosha is what we would have seen in Zosima had we been able to see him as a young man. Like, mm. This is this is what the beginning of the path that ends up where Father Zosima is looks like. And so in a way, we can project to what Alyosha will be at the end of his life. He will be a Father Zosima character. And we can also look at Father Zosima and say, how did he get this wisdom by walking in the world as Alyosha did and experiencing these types of things, but doing it faithfully, staying yes. true to his witness to the, the truth of the faith, which includes the claim that you are in the image of God. And therefore, there's something here worth saving. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. I 
didn't mean it to say that Father Zosima is maybe uh, all up here, like he's a brain on a stick or something. I think it, it's just more to say in the in the in the way the story unfolds, yeah. uh, Father Zosima's the archer holding the bow, yes. and uh, Alyosha's the arrow who gets yes. shot off by him. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think the the level of holiness Father Zosima has mm -hmm. is not attainable from someone who uh, struggles with the sin of ascetic disdain, like Maria Skopsova <laughs> would call it. You know, he he's not an ivory tower uh, guy who's totally cut off. In fact, in some ways, I think it's fitting that he does stink when he dies. Yeah, you know, he he um he's not really interested in a sort of holier than thou approach to the faith, which he could have very easily taken you know, yeah. with people, yeah. but he doesn't. He bows to Dimitri. He's with the people. He really cares about them and loves them. And so why would his death be? That, that would be missing the forest for the trees. You know, it would be putting right. emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah. Um, That's right. That's right. Well, and, and, and it gives you that final excuse too. I could never be like him. Right. The saints are a different animal than the rest of us, and I can never be like that. No, this guy stinketh just like you do. So what's what excuse do you have for not following the path that he so clearly marked out for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, we have to put an arbitrary end to this at some point, and, and I, maybe that's a, a, as good a place as any to leave it. I think so. I think so. But, man, we could probably go on for a couple more hours. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much in this book. So read it. That's the that's that's our conclusion. Just totally read, like it. Read it for the first time or the second time. So, um, you've, have you got a, an end note for us? Yeah, I do have one end note. Um, and the so, rather than a secondary source or something like that, I think what I would say is that there's a novel which is alluded to a few times in um, in. Brothers Karamazov, which is called Fathers and Sons by Ivan Turgenev, uh, also a Russian novel, uh, struggles with some of the same themes, though in many ways opposite ways. So the center of the story is a father and son who actually love each other. Mm. Um, and the question is, what what can come between them? Mm. Um, and so it's a very interesting, but there's there's uh, there's a nihilist character who who doesn't believe in anything and it's it's a very interesting novel i i really love it in fact i think it might be my favorite russian novel which i say like i've read a bunch of russian novels and i haven't <laughs> but um but i do think that it makes an interesting conversation partner with brothers mm -hmm. k and so i would i would strongly recommend fathers and sons by ivan turgenev well i'm also not going to recommend a secondary source i'm going to rec recommend the other great dostoevsky novel crime and punishment um which is in case you're thinking come on man like this seriously with the russian novels crime and punishment is is maybe a, a fourth the size of brothers k and it's actually the length of a normal person novel instead of a russian novel and um and it also has i and I'm, I'm prone to this you're going to hear this again when we talk about chaucer um for all of the attention gets drawn to the big ambitious work um the masterwork in my mind is the work that's done and that is able to have its final shape brothers k is brilliant and this head it has moments of brilliance that surpass what you see in um in crime and punishment but it lacks that shape of the whole because it's incomplete um and crime and punishment is complete and it's a beautifully shaped piece from beginning to end it's a people always describe it as the psychological study and and i i think that's if you happen to just love psychology and they get you out of bed in the morning, then yes, think of it as a psychological study. But it's really not. It's it's really a, a study in uh, loneliness 
Um, it's a study in, um, in, in how to make your way in a modernist world. And it's something of an absurdist world. Um, and the main character, um, Raskolnikov, is struggling with guilt and with loneliness and with trying to figure out who he is in the midst of all these things while everyone around him is trying to figure out whether he's actually guilty of murder or not. Um, mm. it, is, it is a brilliant, brilliant piece and a much uh, quicker read than this one. And so I, I definitely recommend it as a companion piece and as a standalone piece. Excellent. Excellent. We'll add it to the reading list. <laughs> Well, I guess we can go ahead and wrap up then. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate your support. Uh, you can follow us on Substack. We do newsletter every other week that um, fosters some interesting discussion. We have some interesting uh, dis discussion in the chat feature of Substack. It's really a wonderful community of people who love to read, who love to discuss, who love to learn. Um, and so it's a very, very cool place. So um, we hope that you will join us for that. Our next books, we're doing two next month and it is oedipus rex by sophocles and poetics by aristotle um, so we hope that you will join us for that and in the meantime keep reading take care <laughs>